Do we love the gospel and the Lord of the gospel, or do we love what the gospel can do for us? This is the question that we're going to encounter here in Acts chapter 8. Invite you to open your Bibles there, Acts chapter 8. We're making our way through portions of Acts, lessons from the first church, a story of glory and of challenge. We have discovered some really horrible things over the last two weeks. Stephen is killed. He's the first martyr of the Christian faith. And as a result of Stephen's martyrdom, the Bible records in Acts 8 uh, verse 1 that a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem arose. A great persecution. This persecution was so great that everybody fled. They all left Jerusalem. So, this church, which is the only church at the time, right? There's only one church. It truly was the first church. (laughs) That's it. There was no second church. First church. And everybody left except the apostles. And we talked a little bit about why it might have been that the apostles stayed in town. But the fact is that people had fled, and they'd gone out into the countryside, into the regions of Judea and Samaria. Uh, One of those who had gone out into that region, uh, the region of Samaria, was one of the early deacons of the church. Now, they weren't officially called deacons at this time, but there were seven men who had been tasked with distributing food to widows, uh, Hellenistic Jewish widows. And Stephen was one of them. He got martyred. Philip is another one. And he flees Jerusalem, and he's in the region of Samaria. He happens upon a city in Samaria, and while he's there, he proclaims the gospel. And just as horrible as the things that have happened in terms of this great persecution, there's amazing things that happen. Because people hear Philip and see the signs that he's doing, and they're paying attention to what he's saying. Unclean spirits are crying out with a loud voice coming out of many people, and those who are paralyzed and, or lame have been healed. And the Bible records in Acts 8.8, 8, so there was much joy in that city. So, we've got a church that's hurting desperately, and then there is great joy. Do we love the gospel and the Lord of the gospel and all that goes with it, or do we love what the gospel can do for us? That's the question that is taken up here in Acts 8, verses 9 through 25. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Acts 8, beginning at verse 9. So there's much joy in that city, that city of the Samaritans, but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news, about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. 
and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you, for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Please have a seat. Do we love the gospel and the Lord of the gospel, or do we love what the gospel can do for us? In verses 9 through 13, we see the joy of the gospel proclaimed and embraced. We're introduced here to a man named Simon who has been in this city of Samaria before Philip ever arrived. He is a practitioner of what the ESV terms magic, but it's not like a Las Vegas magician. It's more the practice of sorcery. We'll talk more about that in a moment. And he's amazed the entire region with his actions. He's likely a Samaritan himself, with some Persian family background that was imported in the Assyrian period that we talked about in a little bit of detail last Sunday. As such, he had vestiges of what were called the Magi. You remember those guys, the wise men that came from the east? He probably has some connection with that movement in Persia. Uh, The plural, magi, has a singular to it. It's called magus. It means magician or sorcerer. And this fellow is known in the Bible as Simon the magician or Simon magus. It's where that name has been referred to by Christians for a long time. Now, Simon has himself been boasting about these acts of sorcery that he's doing and saying that he's somebody great. Now, both Jews and Samaritans should have been rejecting this man as a violator of Deuteronomy 18, 9 to 14. But in Samaritan land, this sort of thing, this kind of sorcery was pretty commonplace as we saw in verse 7 where it talks about unclean spirits and in the history of how people became Samaritans, which is what we talked about last week as well. 
However, verses 10 and 11, despite the clear teaching of the word, the Samaritans paid attention to this Simon all across society, from the least to the greatest. They, they were kind of, kind of paying attention to him. The consensus was that Simon is the power of God that is called great. If there is a Persian background to Simon, as I think there is, the Samaritans are claiming Simon to be the grand vizier of the supreme God. Now, to us, that sounds more like professional wrestling than it does sincere religious expression, but there's no doubt that religious people are deceived by men who make great boasts, right? Religious people are deceived by men who make great boasts, who proclaim themselves to be great, who have other people say how great they are. And in fact, the more outlandish or pompous the boasts, the greater the tendency there is for people to believe the greatness of that person. According to the Samaritans, this Simon was God's great man of the hour, the man for our time, the man to be trusted. Why? Because Simon had amazed them, verse 11, for a long time with his sorcery. Now, we might want to think for a moment about this sorcery of Simon's. What was it? It might indeed have contained magic tricks. That is the issue of sleight of hand and, and playing in a way that would cause you to think that your eyes are seeing what they really aren't seeing. It might have been magic tricks. It might have been a dimension of demonic power. Remember we talked about verse 7, unclean spirits were afoot in Samaria. But I'm going to suggest that it's likely a combination of both. That Simon is using sleight of hand and tricks that he has learned in combination with the seeking after power, which is what all demonic involvement engages in, is a seeking after power combined together to make Simon's presentation all about deceit. And he's been quite successful in convincing people of his greatness. But something wonderful happened when Philip came to town, verses 12 and 13. The people believed Philip. And the way this is stated, it suggests that there is a point of decision, that there's a point at which people said, yes, what Philip is preaching is true, we're going to embrace it. And what was Philip's message? It's the good news. It's the word euangelion in, in Greek. It means the gospel. It's the good news that Jesus died for our sins. He was buried and on the third day he rose from the dead. And everyone who puts their faith and hope in him will be forgiven of their sins and experience an intimacy with God that will last for all eternity. This is the good news that Philip has been proclaiming in this city of Samaria, and it's the message that they believed. Notice that Luke records that Philip's message is the good news about the kingdom of God. 
What that means is that Philip is presenting that God is at work among people to demonstrate that God alone is qualified to build his kingdom and this world and everything isn't in it isn't about you. It's about God and his glory. And the good news is not that you get to be king of your realm, king of your life, but that you get to be a citizen of God's kingdom. That's the good news. And then he goes on to say it's the good news about the kingdom of God and, look there at uh, um, verse 12, good news about the name of Jesus Christ. This phrase, the name of Jesus Christ, is used quite often in Luke and it's used uh, in Acts here and it's used to describe the authority of Jesus Christ. And so it's good news about a kingdom of God that God establishes and it's not about our kingdom and there is a king of that kingdom and his authority and his name is Jesus, the anointed one. That's what Christ means, Jesus, the anointed one. Wow, what a message. And this, what I call name theology is all over Luke uh, in Acts. Acts 2.21, 2.38, 3.6 and 16, Acts 4.10, Acts 4.12, Acts 8.12, Acts 10.48, Acts 16.18. The name of the Lord Jesus is describing his rightful authority over our lives to rule and reign as king. One wonderful, joyous result of Philip's proclamation of this good news is that the people of this city, both men and women, believe this message and they were being baptized. You see it, verse 12? They believed Philip as he preached and they were baptized, both men and women. They're being baptized. They're, they're identifying with Christ. By the way, when it says they believed Philip, it means they believed the message, not that they put their trust in Philip. They're believing his message. And amazingly enough, and initially, an incredibly joyous thing, this Simon the sorcerer, he also believed and was baptized along with the others in the city. Simon was a special and somewhat unexpected case but there are some hints of some problems very early on here. It says in verse 13, Simon himself believed and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. This phrase continued is something disturbing because it means that he followed Philip everywhere. It is a personal attachment that seems out of place. We should be on guard when someone tries to attach themselves too thoroughly to us for no apparent reason. Have you ever had that happen to you? Somebody just kind of attaches themselves to you and you're like, I don't know what you're up to here. This is weird. That's what happened here with Simon and Philip. He just went. Chances are there's some dangers ahead. When Simon saw the signs and wonders that Philip was doing by the power of the Holy Spirit, he who himself was used to the deception of magic and the operation of the demonic now sees real power 
and is amazed. Look at the end of verse 13. Seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. This is, this is kind of weird here because a couple of words that are used here in verse 13 were also used in verse 9. The word amazed and the word great. In verse 9, it's Simon who's amazing the people of Samaria, and he's the one who's saying that he himself is great. Now, after attaching himself in some kind of weird attachment to Philip, he's seeing signs and great miracles performed, and Simon himself is the one who is amazed. This is a warning signal in the midst of a very joyous situation. A humble deacon evangelist of the first church has greater power than the region's most famous sorcerer. And the sorcerer wants that power. Perhaps there is some sincerity in Simon's heart at this point, but as we shall see shortly, sincerity of faith is no substitute for having the true object of faith. It looks like he believes in Jesus Christ in the right way, in fact, he's baptized, just like the other Samaritans. But events are going to prove otherwise. For now, what we are called upon in verses 9 through 13 is simply to rejoice in the gospel proclaimed and embraced. Several applications emerge from these five verses. First, watch out for people who tell you how great they are. <laughs> There, there, there's a little bit of a problem there, isn't there? Secondly, great joy comes with responses of faith in Jesus Christ. As people respond, there should be great joy over people who come to know Jesus as their Savior, and we should embrace that joy. We should not, out of our skepticism, not embrace the joy. However, while we are joyous, we should be circumspect especially when our discerning hearts sense something out of order with the Word of God. And then lastly, uh, by way of application, churches get off track when they stop proclaiming the good news like Philip did so here. It says, Philip proclaimed to them the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. Churches get off track when they stop proclaiming the good news by emphasizing our good works. You'll see lots of churches that are running around talking about how great they're doing with helping poor people. Well, it's great to do good stuff for poor people, but don't brag about that. Brag about Jesus. Churches get off track when they stop emphasizing the kingdom of God, and there are a lot of churches who emphasize what Jesus can do for you here and now your best life that you can have right here and right now. We get off track when we stop emphasizing the kingdom of God. Churches get off track when they stop proclaiming the authority and name of Jesus Christ and instead emphasize the politics of the moment, whether that comes from the left or the right. Our gospel is the name, the authority of Jesus, the anointed king. Let's look next at verses 14 through 17. The transitional working of the Spirit 
in the apostolic age. Philip now exits the stage. He's just gone for a while. He's not, we'll pick him back up here in uh, verse 26, but for now, he's gone. That's a true servant deacon, isn't it? He comes, the apostles arrive, he just goes back into the background. The apostles have heard the joyous news of what's happening up in Samaria, and they send Peter and John to check it out. And notice how the receiving of the gospel is described uh, in verse 14. The apostles heard that Samaria had received the word of God. Samaritans, who had prided themselves in accepting only the first five books of Moses, now are embracing Christ and the gospel, and it is described by Luke here as they had received the word of God. This is exactly the same kind of experience that the first church had in Acts 2.41. They received the word of God. And it's going to happen again with the Gentiles in Acts 11.1 and Acts 17.11. They received the word of God. The gospel has authority, my friends. We're not subject to the winds of culture the variations of personal opinions and protocols, or the popularity of a message. Believers in Jesus everywhere and at all times are subject to the authority of the Word of God. Jews, Samaritans, and Gentiles all receive the Word of God. Now, Verses 15 through 17, Peter and John now pray for these new believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Now, don't miss the irony here. John, who was one of the sons of Zebedee, a son of thunder, okay, he was kind of a a go-getter, a zealous man. And in Luke chapter 9, when they were in Samaria, John had asked Jesus, hey, Shouldn't we call down fire from heaven and consume these Samaritans? (laughs) He who had once asked Jesus, maybe we should just call down fire on these Samaritans, is now the one who is looking at the conversion of the Samaritans, embracing the gospel of Jesus, and is filled with joy. And in sharing in that joy of Samaritan salvation, he joins with Peter in laying on hands so that they may receive the Holy Spirit. Now, during the time of the apostles, the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church was in what we might term a transition. It simply was unknown at this moment whether or not a church outside of the first church in Jerusalem could exist. Is it possible? The the only church they knew was the one in Jerusalem. That was it. There was no other. Could there be another church that gets established? They didn't know. Could a church exist outside of the apostles' presence? It was unknown to them whether or not that would be true. And so, God himself withheld the gift of the Spirit until Peter and John came. The reason that God did this, at least in part, was to demonstrate that this new church established in Samaria was in every way just like the first church. 
It was not because the Samaritans were faulty in their faith that they didn't receive the Holy Spirit immediately, but rather it was so that the apostles could testify that indeed this new fellowship was a church of the Lord Jesus Christ with the same Holy Spirit at work. This will not become the norm for the church because as more and more churches are established, the work of the Holy Spirit in baptizing and dwelling the fellowship comes with faith in Christ. It goes exactly with faith because as more and more churches get developed, there's no more need to demonstrate that churches can exist apart from the first church in Jerusalem, right? And so by the time we get to the point where Paul is writing his first letter to Corinth, we read this in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 and 13, just as the body is one and has many members and all members of the uh, body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. And then hear this, for in one spirit, we were all baptized in one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So that there was this transitional period where the Holy Spirit came to the church separately apart from believing the gospel and then as more and more churches were established, it became true that the Holy Spirit simply came to people as they believed. That's what 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says. In this early situation, the establishment of new churches needed to be confirmed by the apostles. This receiving of the Holy Spirit reveals, yes, new churches can be established. The Holy Spirit comes to others, and the Spirit's ministry will be part of what defines a church fellowship. So, when the apostles prayed and laid their hands on them, a new Pentecost occurred, this new believing community, and a Samaritan one at that received the Holy Spirit. Today, we no longer have to worry about that. When we established Living Stone Communities, our church plant in West Bloomington, we did not worry about whether or not that church would be indwelt by the Holy Spirit and the individuals that were in it were uh, indwelt and baptized, immersed, placed into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. It's obvious it happens everywhere upon faith. Doesn't have to happen as some separate event. But here in Acts, there was this transition. Now, this receiving of the Holy Spirit is something that Simon pays attention to, and we will look here at the danger of wolves who distort the gospel by power and money. In verse 18, Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of Peter and John's hands, and he offers money to obtain the power himself to lay hands on people so that they would receive the Holy Spirit too. Now, <clears throat> this is a key charge against Christians these days, that we are in it for the money, isn't it? We're in it for the money. How many times have you heard that? Christians, they're just interested in your money. You know? uh, I remember several years ago when I was pastoring up in the Quad Cities, our church had an outreach event to the entire Quad Cities that involved Luis Palau and some other people that uh, were in, in, involved in a, a big outreach, big outreach. 
we invited all the churches in the area to participate and we, as our church, paid for it all. We paid for it all because we didn't want there to be any possible hint that there was any interest on our part to obtain money from anybody for any reason. For whatever reason, this event captured the imagination of the local news media. And so it was on television and it was on the front page of both of the major papers in the Quad Cities. And all these letters to the editor came just excoriating our church because we were in it for the money. It was baffling to me. We did not ask or receive any money from anybody. We were giving out money. In fact, did lots of things that supported the community in the effort. But the fact is, it is so entrenched in the minds of people that Christians are in it for the money that that is the automatic reaction whenever anything Christian gets to be promoted in the larger culture. Well, they must be after our money. Okay. Now, this idea is not helped by the fact that some Christians and some who profess Christ are indeed in it for the money and that they think that money is the answer to everything. Simon wants power, and he thinks that money is a way to obtain this spiritual power. Um, the old English term simony, which is the act of obtaining religious power by money, comes from this very account here in Acts chapter 8. It's named after Simon. <laughs> in Second Temple Judaism, there was a high priest, um, his name was Jason, who purchased the office of high priest from the Greek king who ruled that region. Um, later, of course, bishops and popes of the church obtained their offices by money. Both of those instances reveal the rotted nature of the religious institution. And so now in verse 19, Simon wants to reduce the Spirit's power to a formula. Give me this power so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now, he thinks that somehow it's just a strategy. It's just a formula. This is God in a box theology. Let's, give me the box, give me the principles, and let me go do this. Simon apparently believes that the apostles are just like him, Carnival barkers who want to attract a crowd and the power and money that goes with such popularity. He thinks that the work of the Holy Spirit of God can be bought and controlled by people. Simon, uh, Peter's response to Simon is a stern rebuke. Look at verse 20. Uh, he says, may your silver perish with you. Now, he doesn't rebuke Simon with those words because there wasn't any need for money in the church. <laughs> I mean, they had lots of needs. There were these widows that needed to be fed, right? And they, they had a whole problem with trying to figure out how to do that. And then you remember in Acts chapter 3, Simon is, or Peter, Peter is going into the temple and there's a lame guy there who's begging for money and Peter says to him, 
I don't have any silver or gold, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. When Peter said, I don't have any silver or gold, how literally do you take him there? I think he's saying, I don't have any silver or gold. <laughs> I, I, let's take Peter at his word. I don't have any silver or gold. So his rebuke, your silver perish with you, is not because there wasn't any need for money in the early church. The response is because Peter knows that the church of Jesus Christ can do just fine if it has the Holy Spirit and no money. The church of Jesus Christ is a disaster if it has money and no Holy Spirit. The gift of God cannot be bought with money. In fact, the idea that it can reveals an unregenerate heart. Look at how Peter rebukes him. He says, your money perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money? You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Revealing an unregenerate heart. Oh, a profession, a belief, even one that could be believed by people that, well, because he was baptized. But Peter is saying, you have no part in this venture of the church because your heart is not right before God. Peter's advice here to what we might term a potentially big giver to the church is shockingly frank. I mean, Simon had lots of money, I'm guessing. And today, if he were to go to some churches, they'd probably say, well, we're not going to worry too much about the fact that he doesn't have very good theology. The fact is he's got a lot of money. Let's figure out how we can get money from him. That's probably potentially true in some churches today. But Peter's advice is this. Look at verse 23 or 22. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours. Repent of this wickedness of yours. Pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. If it's possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you, may be revealed to you, and then may be forgiven. It's doubtful that Simon has even seen that he's wrong at all. Notice why Peter gives this counsel. He gives this counsel in verse 22, and he gives the reason why he gives it in verse 23. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond, the chains of iniquity. This word gall is an interesting one. You are in the gall. These are the bitter fluids secreted by the liver, stored up in the gallbladder. It's bile, right? In the bile of bitterness. Um, it's an interesting thing to be married to a nurse. Because you get all kinds of weird stories when they come home from work. 
Carol worked for a while as a surgical nurse, uh, treating patients after their, uh, their surgeries. She'd come home. She told me more than I wanted to know. And I'm about to tell you more than you want to know. She comes home. Her uniform's just a mess. It's this really... I, she goes, ah, this guy's bile bag broke on me. You know, you're just like, Wah! just throw the thing away. Let's get it, you know. <laughs> uh, Peter's imagery here is, 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 is exactly what he wants to say to Simon. You are in bile, the gall of bitterness of your heart, and in the bond, the chains of iniquity. That's why he's given this counsel, repent, pray to the Lord, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. Notice what Simon does in response in verse 24. Rather than repenting, rather than praying, what Simon says is, Peter, You pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. No, 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 no. These are matters that Simon must pray for himself. Nobody can repent for you. You know, grandma may be a wonderful believer in Jesus. Grandma cannot repent for you. You repent of your sin. Notice what Simon wants. Simon doesn't want healed from sin and iniquity, forgiven from sin. What does he want? He doesn't want anything bad that Peter may have said to happen to him. He wants his best life now. I don't want anything bad to happen to me, so pray for me. Is it any wonder that early church historians record that Simon became known in early church history as the father of the greatest cult to pressure the church in the first few centuries of of its existence, the, the cult of what was called Gnosticism, which I talked about a little bit last week in the Facebook Live prayer time. Notice that despite this weird fellow, this sorcerer with the wrong priorities, the apostles are not diverted from their mission. Notice they testified, that is, they gave their personal testimonies of how Jesus changed their lives, and they spoke the word of the Lord. There's that word of God again speaking. And they returned to Jerusalem And as they did so, they were proclaiming the gospel all along as they went in the towns and villages of Samaria as they headed back south. They stayed on mission. So let's think about some applications here. There are always people, always people who are like Simon, interested in all of the things that aren't the most important priority of the church. There are people, for example, who are keenly interested in church politics and gossip. 
There are people who are keenly interested in the numbers of the church. How much money are we taking in? What's our attendance? But they seem to be, at the same time, very slow in their worship, very ignorant of the Bible, and very much not interested in talking about Jesus and the gospel. Oh, they'll talk to you all day about what's going on in the church, but talk to them. Tell me what you know about Jesus. Tell me how he is transforming your life. And all of a sudden, it's crickets. It is not that those other things are unimportant and should not be discussed. They, of course, should be. But they ought to be discussed in the priority of the fact that our focus is to seek to be worshipers, maturing in Christ. If you are one of those people who does not have such an interest and is interested in all those other things but not interested in Christ and the gospel and speaking of Jesus and talking about what you're learning about him and talking about the joy you found in the word and in the way in which you can share him with us. If you are not one of those people, beware of the problem of Simon. It may be that you are not saved. And nobody can do the repenting for you. What we value is often not what is to be sought. We value money. We value power. Do not seek these. Instead, seek the fullness of the Holy Spirit in your life. Valuing money and power puts us in the gall of bitterness and in the chains of iniquity. We have the stink of bitter hearts and we have the chains of sin as a result. So what do you love? What do you love this morning? Do you love the gospel and the Lord of the gospel? Or do you love what the gospel can do for you? Indeed, the gospel can do many things for us. In most cases, it can make your life less thorny. It can, by the word of God's careful instruction, teach you ways that lead to success. By the fellowship that can be enjoyed among believers in the family of God, it can give you rich friendships. It can show you how to have a blessed family. It can give you eternal life and you will be able to see your friends and loved ones in, in heaven. But question, what happens if some of those things don't happen for you? Or if they don't turn out to be what you anticipate? Do you love the Lord then? That's the Job question, isn't it? You remember the devil appeared before the Lord and he said, you know, Job, he's just, he's just worshiping you because you're giving him all these good things. He loves the things, not you. Take those things away and then we'll find out what he's made of. That's the Job question. And we meet up with the Job question here again in Acts chapter 8 with Simon. He did not love the gospel. He did not love the Lord of the gospel. He wanted what he imagined the gospel could give him. Now it is true, many do indeed trust Christ genuinely because they want to escape hell. Indeed, as a young boy, that is why I trusted Jesus. 
But I submit to you that that is an infantile faith that needs to be grown. The more we know of the real God who is there, the more we are drawn to the fact that we love and worship him for who he is, not merely what he can do for me. Even if he does nothing, we will trust him. This is why we sang what we did this morning. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus, the Nazarene, and I wonder how he could love me, a sinner, condemned, unclean. How marvelous, how wonderful my song shall ever be. You see, I think that for many of us, it's not that we haven't recognize these things, it's that our thoughts have grown so shallow about eternal matters, about what heaven will be like. When we sing the Revelation song that comes directly out of Revelation chapter 4, are we having in mind the white-hot worship of Jesus Christ around the throne of God in rainbows of living color, flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder? Or are we thinking that we'll be able to see our best friend who died? Do we love the gospel and the Lord of the gospel? Or do we only love what the gospel can give us? Habakkuk has our answer. He was told that Jerusalem was, and Judea were, Judah were going to be destroyed by the Babylonians. And he said, I love God more than I love what God gives me. Here's how he said it. Habakkuk chapter 3. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the olive the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Heavenly Father, teach us to treasure you more than we treasure your gifts. As thankful as we are for your gifts... Help us to treasure you all the more, that we would never make an idol of the gifts you have given us, for you have said you will have no other gods before me. So whether it is the gift of the financial resources you've given us, the gift of some means of autonomy that we have with our, the health that you've given to our bodies or uh, the way in which we can be influencers with others, or with the gift of the children and families that you've given us, help us never, ever to treasure the gifts above the giver. And Lord, for that person who, like Simon, has been trapped in the gall of bitterness and the chain of iniquity, I ask that today they might by your Spirit's power, repent. And ask you to forgive them of their sins by what Jesus did at the cross. And where we as believers fall into this trap, make it clear to us early on in the process that we may not be led astray. 
And may our church fellowship be so filled with your spirit that we talk more, more of Jesus and his love and our amazement at Christ and our worshiping him, maturing in him, than we would ever speak of really anything else. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.